Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm Stephen Rodriguez, a PhD candidate in history at Vanderbilt University and a host on the network. Today I'll speak with Eric Zolov about his new book, The Last Good Neighbor, Mexico in the Global 60s, published by Duke University Press this year. Zolov is a professor of history at Stony Brook University and has written widely on the cultural history of Mexico and Latin America. In this latest book, Professor Zolov retells the history of the 1960s Mexico by focusing on the way that Mexican political leaders pursued a paradoxical foreign policy agenda. They reaffirmed their close, amicable relationship with the United States, while at the same time aggressively asserting a much more radical anti-U.S. conception of hemispheric and international relations. Zolov resolves this foreign policy paradox by setting this period of Mexican history within the larger framework of the global Cold War. In Zolov's account, Mexico emerges not as a peripheral actor, but as a leading voice in this reconfiguration of global alliances during this period. He shows that Mexican policymakers were able to skillfully draw on Mexico's close relationship with the United States in the 1950s and 60s, while also satisfying the more radical demands of the new left in Mexico in order to reposition the country as a leading geopolitical actor within an emerging global solidarity movement between the nations of the third world. This richly textured and well-argued monograph reinterprets many aspects of Mexican, Latin American, and international history through a skillful rereading of familiar sources, as well as an impressive incorporation of new sources. I'm thrilled to have the chance to speak to Professor Zolov about his new book today. Welcome to the show, uh, Professor Zolov. Greetings. Thanks so much for this opportunity, Stephen. Appreciate it. Um, I want to start, you know, your, your first book, Refried Elvis, which I think was published in 1999, is very much a, a cultural history. This book, uh, the, the there's certainly a lot of cultural history here, but it's also a diplom- sort of a diplomatic history, uh, exploring the uh, relations between Mexico, uh, the United States, and, and other countries uh, during the, the global 60s. I, I just wanted to ask about the genesis of this project and how you might see it relating to some of your earlier work. Sure. So, you know, when I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago, I, I went in not for the PhD. That was actually the last thing on my mind. Um, I went in, uh, they had a joint master's program in Latin American studies and international relations. And uh, that, which is the program that I did. And I thought maybe I, I didn't know what I was going to do. I wanted to go into maybe the journalism or diplomatic service or mm. just teaching high school. I really was a bit clueless. And then I, you know, pulled into the PhD program afterwards. But so, you know, at, at, at one level, I, I've, I've always had a, a real interest in uh, international relations. And I think that the way in which I've been interested in Mexico and this, this dynamic, this U.S.-Mexican dynamic was very much shaped by my own experiences in Mexico as an undergraduate in the 1980s um, <clears throat> at a moment when, uh, this, you know, Civil wars were raging in Central America, and the Reagan administration was um, trying to overthrow regimes in, in Nicaragua. And Mexico was 
leading the Contadora peace effort. And it just always struck me as this crazy paradox that how was, you know, this close ally of the United States, clearly sort of subordinate to the U.S. in all these other ways, nevertheless um, fighting for sovereignty in Central America and, and really sort of snubbing, snubbing the Reagan administration. It, it was, um, you know, and of course, later realizing it more profoundly how under the De La Madrid administration in the 1980s, um, it was the sort of last gasp of the PRI. So he was also trying to hold on to this coalition, you know, domestically. So I think that series of paradoxes always stayed with me. And in some ways, this book was an attempt to understand that larger, that larger framework, right. Um, of, of us, the U S Mexican and, you know, Cuban slash radical left dynamic that, that was taking place. Um, in terms of the immediate context of of the book, I did research. Uh, I guess it was in two thousand and one ish, two thousand two. I sort of embarking on a, a next project, and mostly it was just going through um, a lot of stuff at NARA. I spent you know like a whole summer with, at the National Archives mm. in in uh, Maryland. Uh, back when it was really fun to use the, <laughs> it was, I think it was pre. It was pre two thousand and one, so it was pre nine eleven. It was that summer, I think, even, and it was just a joy to use the archives there. You know, there were no the security was really minimal, and they had a really nice cafeteria. You know, <laughs> and uh, I just um, yeah, I, I stumbled upon this this kind of dossier in part that was about the, um, the this attack on the Mex- U.S. Mexican Cultural Institute in Morelia, which I ended up writing the chapter on that was in the in from the cold volume and it just opened up this whole other world this this dynamic that was uh, really fascinating to me and at the time i really for a long time thought that the book was going to be about the impact of the cuban revolution on u.s mexican relations that seemed to be this sort of obvious dynamic and then as I kind of moved forward, partly Renata Keller was working on that as well. And she wrote, you know, her book, which I think did a you know, fantastic job at really, you know, almost encyclopedic, nailing down a lot of, you know, the actors and, and everything for that. So, but at the same time, I was noticing in the documents, these just references to things that I hadn't really seen or thought about, especially neutralism, the idea of neutralism kept showing up again and again in the documents. And I realized that it was really important. And I didn't at the time really understand what neutralism meant or referenced. And that just pushed me to broaden, broaden my, my horizons. Um, and then I did research in Kew Gardens in, in England, uh, had a, a small grant to do that. And it allowed me to see you know, Mexico, the U.S. Mexican dynamic, and and what was happening in Latin America through British eyes and and French eyes and others, because there were a lot of documents in the in the British archives, and that was just great. I mean, that just opened up everything to me, and I realized that this was much much bigger than just you know the U.S. Mexican Cuban dynamic. That Cuba was actually kind of a a subordinate factor or player in this whole schema. Mm. I want to get back to this kind of triangular relationship between Mexico, the U.S., and, and Cuba. But before that, I mean, a core part of your book is looking at the how Mexico strategically draws on the good neighbor rhetoric. 
And just for listeners who are unfamiliar, um, could you just talk a, a bit more about the the origins of the good neighbor policy and how it changed over time and what it was like by the late 1950s, 1960s? Sure. So the good neighbor policy was this strategic reversal taken uh, under Theodore Roosevelt, although in many ways the origins predated him. But uh, in terms of the, the term itself, the good neighbor was, was used earlier by Harding. Um, but Roosevelt takes this this term in, in the context of the Great Depression, obviously, uh, when the need to uh, establish strong trade relations uh, in a world that was rapidly transforming with all these other countries throwing up their tariff barriers. So in part, it was really started as a uh, as an economic um, pit, pitch, you know, to Latin America, to, to lower trade barriers and um, consolidate uh, hemispheric trade, series of trade partnerships. Uh, and then, of course, in the context of uh, growing fascism and the, the need to solidify the U.S.-Latin American alliance to secure our southern flank, which has historically always been a strategic concern for the United States, and uh, very high uh, political costs, if not also economic and military costs, of U.S. interventionism that had run rampant under the roosevelt corollary period, uh, you know, leading up through the 1920s. So, um, the United States was basically, you know, attempting to nation build, right? To call it that, in Central America and the Caribbean. So there's this kind of strategic reversal, uh, and it's uh, the the premise, the basic premise is mutual respect, right? And it's respect for sovereignty, um, and it leads. It's finally codified, you know, throughout the 1930s. Um, initially, the United States signed a treaty with Latin America, the, the, the non-intervention. Pledge of 1933, saying, "Okay, we you know we won't do it anymore. Sorry about that. You know, we we were a bad neighbor, but now we're a good neighbor." And then this, you know, really kind of reaches a peak in, during the World War II, especially in the early years of World War II. The Office of the Coordinator of Inter-American Affairs is created um, at the uh, end of the 1930s, um, headed by Nelson Rockefeller. And, you know, launches a whole cultural program and and vetting machine to try to transform both U.S. image in Latin America and Latin America's image in the United States. Um, And Mexico was a key component of that whole strategy for a number of reasons. I mean, obviously, because it's a a neighbor, border country, um, but also the the, uh, Germans had made a pitch to Mexico uh, following the nationalization of U.S. oil before the United States kind of came to terms with that. So it was clear that the United States was strategically vulnerable to uh, fascist powers, European powers, trying to um, balance out, undo that U.S. relationship. Um, you know, Mexico sent, you know, Bracero workers to the U.S. So mm-hmm. there was there was also a kind of labor component. Um, and Mexico plays a very key role, um, just uh, culturally in the cultural imagination uh, of, of the U.S. in terms of what it means to be this new good neighbor. But what you know, most historians will argue that this idea of the good neighbor really comes unraveled in the context of the Cold War, and certainly with the U.S. intervention, covert intervention in 1954 to overthrow the Arbenz regime in Guatemala. Now, that was not sort of publicly acknowledged, right? Not for 30 years later, right? But, you know, if you were on the left, you certainly assumed that 
with the U.S. had something to do with it because we had food companies and so forth. Um, and that was a real rupture, um, you know, for, for disillusionment, if you will. And of course, it's also in the context of the U.S. supporting now these so-called depression dictators, you know, Somosas and Trujillos and Batistas and all of that. So the United States is gaining, you know, pretty, pretty nefarious reputation uh, in Latin America, which leads to the backlash against Nixon, Nixon's infamous goodwill toward 1958. Um, and so, you know, for all intent and purposes, the historiography has largely argued that the good neighbor is kind of null and void by the end of the 1950s, even though it's sort of officially, I would say, it doesn't sort of end to end until U.S. intervention in the Dominican Republic in 65, because a core premise of the good neighbor was non-intervention. Um, but in any event, my argument is that it had uh, um, uh, an after, you know, an after effect of a much stronger um, legacy in Mexico. And both sides, both the U.S. and the Mexican side, will use the language or what I call a discursive framework um, of the good neighbor to kind of mutual effect, mutual advantage. And we don't see this elsewhere. I mean, it would be interesting to see other people do projects because I could be wrong. Um, but uh, I would be surprised to see, you know, a Brazil or an Argentina uh, or even a Chile using the language of the good neighbor um, it, you know, in the 1960s. Of course, they'll use the language of the Alliance for Progress, which is an effort under Kennedy to, in many respects, sort of rejuvenate the spirit of the good neighbor. But the language of the good neighbor kind of gets relegated just to Mexico, so far as I can figure. Um, and it has tremendous staying power there that works to mutual advantage. Yeah, I, I mean, I found your kind of uh, take on this afterlife of the good neighbor policy very refreshing because I think a lot of the historiography on the good neighbor policy, even in the initial period, tends to view it rather cynically, that this is really just a rhetorical move on the part of the US to try to appease Latin American nations who had been upset about how the US dominated Pan-Americanism in the earlier period. Um, this kind of US-led version of Pan-Americanism that started in the late 1880s. Um, I'm wondering here, how do you see, what is Mexico's larger role within Pan-Americanism from this earlier period? Was Mexico sort of always positioned, uh, did it always have a central role within these hemispheric um, types of uh, alliances or institutions yeah, yeah. between the North and South? Or was this something that really takes off more in the 50s and 60s? No, it's a great question. I mean, Mexico really is the great disruptor. Right. I mean, hmm. the Mexican Revolution occurs precisely <laughs> at the high watermark uh, when the United States is trying to uh, consolidate hmm. a, a you know, sphere of influence, um, certainly over Central America and the, in the Caribbean. Uh, and so Mexico not only you know, wrecks that or, or, you know, really explodes in the face of, of U.S. foreign policy towards Latin America at that moment, um, but it provides in the, you know, from the 1920s forward, um, uh, a balance, it's a, it's a balancer, it becomes a counterbalance force. And I mean, look, it's no coincidence that in the 1920s, you've got, you know, Sandino going to Mexico, you've got Victor Ayala de la Torre, who's going to be the founder of opera, go, right, going, going to Mexico. Um, you, you've got uh, um, the famous uh, um, 
uh, Argentine uh, spokesman um, who, who is uh, spacing his name at the moment, who goes to Mexico and announces, you know, we can no longer be Pan-Americanists, right? So Mexico mm-hmm. becomes this place of refuge for radicals, um, you know, and the broadly constituted notion of, of the left, uh, and thus offers itself as a, as a real counter-hegemonic force. So the United States kind of has to reconcile that reality. Um, now, of course, Mexico at the same time is still, you know, wed to the U.S. Uh, economically. So that sets up the dynamic for a fundamental, you know, strategic paradox that that will play itself out moving forward, I think. Yeah, um, I, I'm interested. I mean, I, I'm wondering how this relates to uh, something you talk about in uh, in chapter three, which is Mexican exceptionalism. And certainly the Mexican revolution is a huge part of building this idea that Mexico had a, a, a as you quote here, a, a true revolution. Um, and, you know, obviously this ties into to Mexican nationalism, but I'm particularly interested in how this idea of Mexican exceptionalism ties into U.S. exceptionalism. Was Mexican exceptionalism, at least in this period, in some way tied to the fact that Mexico had this, you know, quote unquote, special type of relationship with the United States that other nations in Latin America didn't necessarily have? Are those things connected? Yeah. I mean, I think when I talk about the exceptionalism, I I was more kind of quoting um, Lopez Mateos, who was arguing that, you know, Mexico has this true revolution. And of course, he's at that time trying to make the case that you know, Latin America sort of, sort of should follow the Mexican example, not not the Cuban example, or not even the Brazilian example. You know that Mexico has sort of found the formula for merging economic uh, you know, justice with political freedoms, with constitutionalism, etc. You know that this magic formula that you know, everyone is is pursuing, right? So I think he's kind of making this argument. Um, you know whether we also could make the case that there's a certain kind of exceptionalism. Um, I mean, of course, that's been a long-standing argument that, you know, the PRI is this, you know, exceptionalist regime because of its, uh, you know, absence of, of military coup, basically, um, which, you know, has has just has some merit to it. It's true. Mexico's probably the lone Latin American country um, that has not experienced prolonged periods of, of uh of military interventionism, although I think, you know, maybe Colombia also, I mean, it's probably not a, a, an entire exception. I don't think that's totally true, but, um, but it, you know, it's exceptional, certainly in the fact that it's borders the United States and it's the only, um, really, it's the only third world country to, to use that term that, that is going to be linked to, you know, non-industrialized country with an industrialized country, how we want to freeze it. Um, and that, you know that set, definitely sets up uh, a unique. Um, I don't know what do we want to say, like a uh, uh, strategic burden <laughs> and strategic opportunity mm-hmm. um, for Mexico in this regard, and it you know confronts the United States with with a unique situation as well. Um, uh, and now, on the one hand, the United States does not have to worry about a military threat at its border. Now, that's unusual. You know, if you're France or, you know, <laughs> Germany or any other, you know, 
normal state, so to speak, you have to worry about a military threat at your border. The United States doesn't, um, but it has this other, you know, strategic vulnerability, uh, which is, you know, political instability, uh, the fact that, you know, leftist orientation, so, you know, the, the opportunity for, you know, external, you know, the U.S. strategic mindset, at least, you know, external ideological influences, uh, influencing, uh, you know, the dynamic and, you know, threatening uh, investment, etc. So uh, that is exceptional in that regard in terms of a strategic concern. Yeah, I mean, I guess I was thinking more about the rhetorical sort of element of the exceptionalism, like the way that the historical actors are conceiving of their nation as exceptional, whether that, you know, from a more critical perspective, because it seems to me that the the good neighbor policy, in a way, almost provides an ideal uh, sort of rhetorical toolkit for countries in Latin America to create or to build up an exceptional relationship with the U.S., like stressing this friendly relationship and a kind of a shared history. And I guess this is true of Pan-Americanism as well. I think at the heart of this, it's there's a sense that there's an exceptional relationship uh, between the nations of the, uh, of the Western Hemisphere that is not shared by other nations. And I guess within each country in Latin America, we could there, the exceptionalisms differ in the kinds of things they emphasize. I think there's also maybe a Cuban exceptionalism that ties into the U.S. exceptionalism in a way, at least in the earlier period. So I'm just kind of fascinated by yeah, the way that this book gets into the how me- uh, Mexicans are uh, political leaders are thinking about their own exceptional uh, role. And it's, of course, it's, I guess, hard to say how much of that is merely rhetorical and how much of it is actually believed, like a deeply felt national belief. But um, I think it's interesting uh, nonetheless there. Um, yeah, and, I mean, I, Mexico yeah. certainly can lay claim to certain exceptionalisms. I mean, look, it's you know, at that point, it, I, it's only one of two successful revolutions, if we consider the Cuban Revolution, depending on what point mm-hmm. in time we're talking about, right? I mean, really, in the 20th century, you know, there's only three revolutions in all of Latin America, successful military revolution, you know, where you change the state. It's Mexico, Cuba, and Nicaragua. Um, so, you know, it's exceptional in that regard. Um, and, you know, it's the only large state that has a, a revolution, right? So, I mean, it's, it's truly exceptional. It's exceptional that it borders the U.S., um, uh, you know. But I, I think your, your point, which, which is well taken, is the ways in which, you know, in some sense, Pan-Americanism, I guess, as an ideology, as a construct, was it was successful and in its in its success it was it lent itself to mutual manipulation you know we tend to think mm. of pan-americanism as simply a tool for the u.s for domination mm. but in this case what we're seeing is that pan-americanism certainly the the clause over sovereignty and this is sort of my key argument for the good neighbor which is sort of a subset let's say of pan-americanism that you know the good neighbor's premised on mutual respect and non-intervention, mm. that gets used by Mexico and arguably by by other countries in Latin America as a principle to ward off U.S. interventionism. <laughs> right? I mean, the United States. It's so striking when you look at the documents. The United States can't 
say anything out loud about internal Mexican policy, domestic policy, because the Mexicans can always just cry foul. And and there's such a, a wellspring of nationalist, you know, potential to mobilize by the Mexican state. So the United States has to actually tread kind of carefully. Um, so the United States holds really key economic levers, but at the same time, it cannot just act crudely. It has to walk kind of on eggshells in, in some respects. And, and that's the dynamic that to me was so fascinating. Um, yeah. And I think this ties in, in, in a way to the, your, your book is doing, I think a lot of really interesting things with scale. Um, you're operating at a hemispheric scale, um, a national scale and an, and a global scale. Um, and I kind of want to get to all of those, but first is kind of one to start with a question about the national scale with the, the, the first chapter of the book is talking about the role of the Mexican president Cardenas. And as you say, he serves as a multi a multifaceted role as a symbol of past, the past and future of the Mexican left. I guess that gets us into the, 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 the way the book talks about the Mexican left as well. But could you just say a few words about what role Cardenas plays um, for the Mexican left during this period? Right. So Cardenas had been president from 1934 to, to, um, to 40. And, you know, he was a, a hero not only within Mexico because he basically consulted, he, you know, carried forth the promises of the Mexican Constitution of 1917. So basically, the, next, the Constitution of 1917 did not get fulfilled in a fundamental sense until Cardenas. And that's a huge paradox that Mexican historians, you know, always talk about. Why did it take nearly 20 years, basically, mm-hmm. for these revolutionary precepts to get carried out? So that's a kind of Mex- very mm-hmm. Mexicanist question. Um, but not only was he, you know, revered within the Mexican political context for having consolidated and brought forth the you know revolutionary principles, but he was recognized throughout Latin America and even the world because he had national. He was the first to nationalize U.S. and British-owned oil companies. So it's a massive, you know, huge. <laughs> you know, it's a, uh, you can't uh, uh, overstate it. You know, hmm. huge uh, uh, event when he's overnight just says, you know, we're going to take the oil because they're not dealing fairly, um, and he stands up to the U.S. and and actually lays the foundations for this good neighbor relationship as well, because President Roosevelt calls off the oil companies and says, look, we got bigger fish to fry, right? This is this is a narrower bilateral interest, but we've got to think in terms of our strategic global interest because of fascism. So he consolidates the Mexican political regime. He is an in, in really international, certainly a hemispheric revolutionary icon. Um, and paradoxically, uh, helps to solidify the U.S.-Mexican relationship. So, but then he kind of, you know, he's, he's very visible during World War II. He's the Minister of Defense uh, under Camacho. Um, but then he kind of disappears from the scene, you know. He's very respectful of presidential power. He kind of sets up the system. And he it helps to institutionalize the system by staying out of the way, by saying, look, ex-presidents have to get out of here. But 
he is very disturbed by the course of the Cold War. Um, he's very disturbed by the overthrow of Arbenz. And by the late 1950s, mid to late 1950s, he's kind of returning to the, to the international uh, spotlight. He gets awarded the Stalin Peace Prize, um, which becomes an international event in its own right. Uh, and he becomes a member, he's a, a, a leading member of the Soviet Front Organization, the, the World Peace Congress, um, which is, has branches all over Latin America by the 1950s. And then he you know, goes to Cuba in 1959. So, so six months, seven months after the triumph of the Cuban Revolution, he gets invited to, to go to Cuba because he had played a, an important minor, but ultimately important role in, in, in the Cuban Revolution in helping to secure the re- release of Fidel Castro and Che Guevara and others from the Mexico jail um, earlier on. So he's kind of an honorary, you know, he's being, he's being recognized by Fidel Castro for, as I think, like an honorary degree, you know, and he's allowed to appear mm-hmm. on the dais with next to Fidel Castro when Castro is uh, basically handing out, uh, you know, land reform titles and, and inaugurating the sort of birth of the Cuban Revolution. Um, and that's a very, very famous moment. And he, Cardenas, says in this speech, he says, look, we Mexicans know that, you know, revolutions uh, aren't imported or exported. They're, they're, they're made organically. And we demand the same respect for the Cuban revolution as we demanded respect for the Mexican revolution. Um, and it kind of presents Lopez Mateos with a fait accompli. It's like, all right, you're going to have to recognize this revolution. And, you know, otherwise you're going to be disavowing me. And, mm-hmm. and, and I am such an icon on the stage, you know, for domestic politics. So he plays a really key role um, in, you know, others have interpreted him as threatening Lopez Mateos because of his support for the Cuban Revolution um, and the way in which the Mexican left, this very nascent, in, inchoate, uh, messy left, is mobilizing around Mexican domestic politics and, and some international politics at the end of the 1950s and early 60s. And, and they see Card- Cardenas emerges as this spokesperson, as this figure, right, um, with national stature. And, and most historians have interpreted that as a, a threat to the regime. That, and that's, you know, at the time what the document said, like, oh, my God, Cardenas, he's going to lead another revolution. This is, this is terrible. Lopez Mateos is so weak and Cardenas is so strong and Cardenas is, is a communist. He received the Stalin Peace Prize. and. He supports, he supports Cuba. And if Mexico can't tame Cardenas, then Mexico is just going to, you know, go the way of Cuba, right? I mean, that was really what the foreign policy people were saying, certainly what the media were saying. But in fact, in my argument, Cardenas serves a really, really key role in acting as a bridge between Lopez Mateos and this left, this, this disorganized, you know, messy left. Um, and thus a really a, a, an interlocutor between them and ultimately as, as a force that can kind of channel this left and harness it, in my language, harness it to the regime for the regime's broader strategic purposes of, uh, of seeking out new diplomatic uh, and economic opportunities beyond the United States. And that, that's a key paradox that I try to that I try to argue. And in my mind, you know, one of the strongest revisionist arguments of the book to not see Cardenas 
and the left as a threat, but rather as a, a resource for Lopez Mateos. And on the, the point about the left, so Cardenas is this figure who's unifying different strands of the left, both the kind of, I guess, Mexican left, but also the global left. Um, can you just speak about some of the main cleavages at this time between different, um, the, the, between the left in Mexico and perhaps also internationally and uh, how this tension what this tension, how Lopez Mateos dealt with some of this tension. Yeah. So like a, a central theme through the book is to try to understand, and as you said, I try to point out these, you know, connect these different levels. Mm-hmm. So to me, sort of in the conceptual framework of the book, um, very much rests on trying to understand how a local dynamic is linked to this global dynamic in these different ways. And that's the kind of project of the global 60s field, the agenda of this global 60s uh, storygraphic uh, you know, proposal. Um, so what I try to look at what's happening within Mexico are, on the one hand, the, the shift from an old left to a new left, right? And, and the old left is a left that's very much you know, wed to the Communist Party um, and, and sees the Soviet Union as a kind of exemplar model to, to follow. Um, uh, and has a certain praxis of revolutionary politics, which is, you know, mass organization, um, uh, a, a belief in electoral politics. I mean, playing this, playing the game um, as opposed to picking up arms, right? Um, and has a certain kind of notion of, of leadership, which you know uh, lends itself towards a kind of caudillo style, populist style, uh, or authoritarian style politics. Um, but there's a shift away from that. There's a disillusionment. It's a generational shift. It's a shift that has to do with um, the, the, the ways in which uh, Stalinism had, was discredited by Khrushchev or what that's happening, you know, with respect to the Soviet Union, but also a shift that's happening globally, internationally with decolonization, the role of Bandung. So the Bandung movement, uh, 1955, was a very key moment as a kind of this birth of this third worldist ethos and framework, the, the idea of this third world project, as uh, Prashad, the DJ Prashad, is terms it, and this, which is linked to a whole other kind of set of, of proposals <laughs> um, that have to do with uh, development and international politics and international ethics and revolutionary ideas, etc. So there's a shift away from this old left to something else, to something new. It's a kind of a moment of the late 50s, early 60s, when a kind of a new left is in formation. Uh, and of course, the Cuban Revolution more locally plays a very important role in that. But I try to argue that it's not certainly not the only factor and in many respects gets uh, subsumed by other forces like the non-alignment movement. Uh, that's one of these projects coming out of Bandung. Um, and then there's shifts that are happening within this emergent new left. Uh, so there is a, a new left, and I divide this into two kind of splits, what I call the vanguardist left and the cosmopolitan left. And that's division within the new left, in my mind, is a division. Uh, it's an ideological division, but it's, it's, a, it's an epistemological division. It's a division about um, praxis 
uh, and about sort of what is, you know, what are revolutionary politics and what are the competing roads to, to get to get to there, right? What, what, what does utopia look like? Um, and it's a really, for me, a fascinating question and, and really at the heart of the kind of global 60s conversation um, about you know, sort of key words, you know, like what is liberation? What is emancipation? Uh, you know, what is peace? Right. What are some of these these you know, key words of the global 60s mean? Because it turns out that they're really contested. <laughs> and in these terms that are contested, the semantics of, of the new left, right, um, or of the left more broadly, if you will, the, the, the semantics of those terms reflect competing worldviews, competing epistemologies that get reflected at the level of, of aesthetics and of um, of individual politics uh, and of uh, relationship to to leaders, uh, et cetera, at all these different levels. And they're very much intertwined, in my mind, intertwined the local, those that local wrangling over sort of what is the left and, you know, what is utopia and how do we get there? That wrangling is intertwined with what's happening at a global scale because of the Sino-Soviet split, because of movements for anti-decolonization you know, and the birth of the new, new imaginaries in, in Africa and in Asia, et cetera. Um, so that's what I try to show in the, in the book. And, and the point there is that Cardenas, basically, he becomes obsolete. He loses control in any of mm. the left and his, his capacity to hold together th- this you know, f- multitudinous left of the late 50s, early 60s moment falls apart very quickly. Um, his concept of, of the left is, uh, becomes antiquated and, and outmoded very, very quickly. I mean, your book is, is, is really set in, I think, in two larger frameworks. One, the global 60s, which you've mentioned and been talking about, but the other one is, is the Cold War. And I'm wondering what, how you see those two frameworks relating or backdrops relating. And also another question about sort of when we're talking about setting something within the context of the Cold War, some historians have, especially intellectual historians like Nils Gilman have kind of, I think, warned against um, subsuming everything or attributing the cause of everything to the Cold War. I, I don't think your book does that. And but I'm and I think partially perhaps the, the global 60s framework adds a kind of another dimension to it and avoids that kind of thing. You also are very uh, pay a lot of attention to the longer legacies of of some of these tensions within the Mexican left, especially, and so I think you avoid that. But I'm wondering, with when you were writing it, if you um you, you found yourself trying to determine when to attribute something to kind of the cult, larger Cold War debates and and framework versus the kind of domestic and hemispheric. You're playing a lot with scale, and I'm just wondering if that was. At, at times sort of challenging deciding which uh, conversations you wanted to intervene on and on what scale? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I definitely see, you know, sort of multiple gears happening and, and I try to capture that, right? So you've got these sort of the local slash national set of gears that, that you know, that there's an internal dynamic and a logic that has, you know, longer trajectories, right? Uh, then you've got the bilateral 
uh, dynamic, U.S.-Mexican dynamic, and even at large U.S., you know, Latin American dynamic, which has its own set of gears and logic, which also have longer trajectories. Um, and then there's there's the global, and the global uh, is certainly you know, set in the Cold War because that is the logic at that moment, right? The set of gears that is happening geopolitically is about the Cold War, so that is pretty much inescapable. Um, you know, I, I think I do adhere or agree to, you know, Greg Brandon t- has talked about this idea of the kind of the you know, internationalization of everyday life that, that happens under the Cold War. And I think there's a, there is a basic truth to that. I think we have to be careful to not overread politics, certainly geopolitics, into every, every day. Like, I think that, that that's certainly an inherent mm-hmm. danger. But at the same time, like I try to do a very close reading of um, of images and aesthetics, and that's not the kind of you know cultural historian in me, you know, and mm-hmm. and, and and in doing so, I try to argue and show that you know the shift in aesthetics and the shift in the way even people are dressing and you know attitudes, even if it's not seen in some explicit sense about the Cold War, which it's not, you know, if you start wearing jeans and long hair, that's not the Cold War, but you, it is inextricable from larger transformations in, you know, the global polity, just because of the ways in which these transnational forces um, are coursing through that polity. So, you know, for me, the, 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 the question of aesthetics, whether it's about, you know, certain images or language um, or music, right? You know, those are all, even if they're, they're happening at a local level, they are linked to these larger transnational forces that are themselves, you know, imbricated in, linked to coming through a Cold War dynamic. So when we say Cold War, it doesn't have to just, it shouldn't just mean, you know, I don't know, military confrontation. That's not what Cold War is, right? It's it's clashing uh, uh, worldviews that are happening at a national, geopolitical, interstate level, but that have these, you know, ramifications, uh, rippling effect, whatever kind of mem- metaphor we want to look for throughout the body politic. Um so, uh, you know, in some sense, I think we kind of can find global politics in the everyday. I don't think we have to overread it because then you're, you know, then you're making a mis- one's making a mistake and sort of pushing, pushing something into a category. But I certainly think we can find the international in the everyday um, in perhaps hidden places. I think it's a really uh, helpful way of thinking about how to kind of connect these things without being uh, the risk uh, without risking over determining the the cold uh, things. Uh, I wanted to ask a, a question about the methodology. You've already kind of talked, hinted at a, a bit your use of cultural sources, and you use a lot of uh, particularly Mexican uh, magazines. Read them very closely, but could you just give us a sense of what the overall research uh, process? was like for this book and perhaps some some challenges that presented and how it maybe is was different from the work you had to do in your first uh, book. 
Yeah. Uh, well, the first book was kind of crazy because, you know, where you don't go to the rock and roll, Mexican rock and roll archive. I mean, now maybe you do. <laughs> you know, back then when I, when I did that, it was hard to find. I mean, I was just on a wild goose chase to try to find sources. Um, as, as a Mexican colleague, I don't know, Ilan Semo, who's the, the son of Enrique Semo, told me the time, he said, you know, Eric, the problem with rock music is that, you know, it's everywhere and nowhere. So it's, you know, <laughs> you're not going to find it. It's not going to leave a trace. And of course, that was when I did my dissertation, that was before the internet. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, before people were, you know, digitizing all, you know, sources. I mean, you just, it was literally, you know, I, I knew it had happened. I had found references to things, but actually uncovering and locating the material was exceptionally challenging. I mean, it was fun because it was just a giant detective story at, at one level, <laughs> methodologically speaking. So this was very different. And I think, you know, anyone in some sense who works uh, well, certainly now, like I, I, I almost feel sorry for the, the, this level generation of historians moving forward because the problem is the reverse in many respects, which is you know this uh, mm-hmm. an overabundance of, of materials because of all the digitization processes and uh, opening of archives, etc. So, you know, now you have to really figure out like, well, what do I keep? What do I throw out? Um, so, to some degree, I had that problem, I suppose, um, although. The, the digitization of, of sources was kind of happening as I was kind of finishing the book. So they weren't totally available. But, you know, I, I spent a long time, I, I guess I, st- I started in the U.S., which is not, well, it was the U.S. and Mexico. I had this grant. So I started, I spent the summer in the U.S., NARA. So I got the sort of U.S. side of things, you know, and I'd spent a long time in the U.S. for doing, going through the documentary stuff. And then, I was in Mexico right when they opened up. It was right in the transition away from the PRI. So I uh, had early access before they started vetting people and shutting it down. But to the, uh, to the, uh, the DFS archives, the DIPS archives, these are the sort of basically internal secret police records that were just being opened up under, under President Fox when the PRI finally fell. So that was exciting because it was kind of raw and, you know, no one had really looked at it before, mm-hmm. but it was a mess too. I mean, it just was not organized and it was very fragmentary. I mean, to me, if you go from anyone who's worked in the U.S. records just knows how fun it is because you can find the narrative. You can you can follow a narrative trail. And uh, Seth Fine made a really astute observation once years ago when he wrote about this this fetish of of the U.S. documentary record because uh, it's it's so it can be so and you know all consuming and and it's so enamoring you know to 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 read these documents because you can just you get all the characters and you get the storyline and and it seems like you're getting the whole picture and and there's a danger to that there's a real danger to that mm. because then you just think like oh i'll just write my story with these u.s documents because they tell everything um so you really have to obviously you know get get other perspectives and other interpretations um and then i had this this great opportunity to go to Kew Gardens, the basically the British equivalent of NARA, which, you know, was also you were getting this documentary state level documentary record. 
Um, but first of all, the British documents are so much fun to read because they're like super wry and <laughs> you know, the, the British diplomats are hilarious. <laughs> you know, they're really, they, they write these, you know, these, these long missives and they're just kind of, you know, they're funny. <laughs> so that was, that was interesting. And I got a really different take on the U S and take on, on Mexico. Um, and then a lot of the other stuff was kind of, you know, bits and pieces. I, I was able to gain access to, um, to materials that were just opening up in um, at, at Berkeley, uh, some image archives, and then um, uh, other material, fragmentary material for magazines and stuff in Mexico. I spent a long several months doing research in Mexico for that. And then finally, at the end, I went back to the Mexican Foreign Relations Ministry. Now, the thing is, I had gone there for Refried Elvis as one of the many places trying to find anything for that dissertation. And the, the, uh, they're called the SRE archives. They were just a mess. It was just a mess. And I remember I, I did some research there on sort of the cultural arm of Mexican foreign policy in the late 1950s. Um, but I didn't even end up using it, I think, in, in the dissertation of the book. It was just kind of like boxes that were unorganized and all. And I'd heard, I don't remember, there were a number of, you know, new historians. Renata was, was one of them who were these new diplomatic historians who were, you know, going to the Mexican archives. And they had recently been kind of, you know, put back together and were really accessible now for, for historians. And so I thought, all right. Uh, and I went back and I did a summer's, uh, you know, research in at the Foreign Relations Archive, and it was terrific. You know, it was really, really transformative. Um, here I got the Mexican side, very fragmentary still. You're not going to get what you get from the U.S. or British archives. Very hard to follow a, a kind of a paper trail, but there's revealing information. And I was able to find enough, I felt, that uh, f- fleshed out this, you know, international kind of history of Mexican foreign policy uh, at this time. So by then I had these different levels. I had the kind of internal Mexican secret police reports about the left and the magazines looking at this, you know, what is the left and what is how they view Cardenas. I had the U.S. Mexican dynamic um, and I had this international dynamic from, from Britain. And then finally, the last kind of piece of the puzzle was the, the Mexican side. In some ways, it's probably just as well that I did the Mexican foreign policy stuff last, because by then I knew enough mm. about sort of the, what was at stake that I, I could understand um, the, the Mexican you know positions better uh, and and the, the where to where to pursue the storyline. Um, we're coming up on our, our last few minutes, but I, I did want to ask. Uh, I know you've you've you know the book has just come out. Um, but I want to ask if you're what you've moved on to, um, uh, what you're thinking about doing next. Uh, if you have another project in mind, and if it relates to to this most recent book, or if you're going moving a different direction. Well, I do have a funny story about that. So I, <laughs> I, uh, I was on a Fulbright last fall, uh, fall of nineteen, to go to Santiago, Chile, and uh, I went. My whole family and I, I was teaching as like a visiting Fulbright professor university there. And the, the kind of research plan was this book that I've been thinking about for a while, a shorter book called uh, Icons of Protest to, to look at different icons like the peace dove and sandals and the miniskirt, etc., cetera, uh, that were kind of icons of protest in the 1960s and do a kind of maybe a Latin American 
or international history of sort of shorter essays on these different icons. And I was, you know, doing research on that in Chile for for a bit. And then there was the uh, estallido social, you know, this this social revolution that erupts in Chile while we were there, which would, you know, disrupted everything for lots of reasons, um, but also became like all consuming. And it was just fascinating to be in the middle of that. And um, I was there with my wife who teaches uh, comparative literature and ethics at the new school. And we started documenting what we were seeing on the streets. Um, You know, the military was out, but there were all these posters going up and there's this explosion of political graphics and we now have a book that's um uh under review and moving forward with our bergen books and it's called the walls of chile social revolution and political aesthetics in contemporary the walls of santiago sorry the walls of santiago social revolution and political aesthetics in contemporary chile and it looks at um various facets of the social revolution in Chile through political graphics um, and does a kind of mm. longer sort of history of these, the different images that we saw on the walls and that kind of stylistically and thematically um, and uses that to organize uh, a book to talk about uh, what's happening in, in Chile today in terms of f- feminism, in terms of the indigenous, in terms of neoliberalism, etc. So that that was really unexpected and very exciting kind of to write. We wrote it this past summer. <laughs> uh, and, yeah. uh, you know, so that that will come out hopefully next by next next summer, next fall. And then I still have this icons of protest book sort of on, on the on a back burner. So I'd like to like to get to that. Great. Well, th- those both of those sound uh, really fascinating. I just want to thank you again for for taking the time to talk about this really wonderful uh, new book. And um yeah, I'm looking forward to to reading uh, the the future works you mentioned. Yeah, it's terrific. I really appreciate the opportunity to have a conversation. And um, you know, if anyone has any follow up questions, feel free to email me about it. And uh, hope you enjoy the book. There are no reviews out yet, so I'm also you know eagerly awaiting to see how the the world at large uh, responds to it, and hoping to uh, yeah to shake up the historiography and try to push us in new directions as well. <laughs>